disruption zone. Opportunity lives where the status quo dies. Talking to the greatest innovators, disruptors, and off-the-wall inventors, we can scrounge up. You laugh, you'll learn, you'll be inspired. Now, here are your hosts, Leland Conway and Cameron Mills. Disruption zone time. Check it out. I got a disruptor. Big time disruptor on the show today. Shell Ackerson is back. Investigative reporter. Um, this is a person. She's won like Edward R. Murrow Awards. She's won like tons of journalist awards. Uh, she is a true journalist. Unfortunately, she is rare. And as such, the media attacks her. They try to make her seem like she's kooky. Like she's out there. Like she's a conspiracy theorist. No, she's a journalist who digs for the truth on inconvenient stories. And she is back with us today for a couple reasons. Now, I encourage you to go back and listen to the uh, first episode that she was on. I'll link to it in the uh, notes on the podcast, thedisruptionzone.com, because you're going to hear the backstory of just how courageous this woman is, how she was actually targeted and spied upon by our government and other elements that maybe we're working closely with the government and what she went through and why she has this incredible strength to try to find and tell the truth. Um, so I would go back and listen to that podcast. But today's episode is about some of the work that she's been doing. So we're going to talk a little bit about journalism and the state of journalism. But we're also going to dive into two important stories. One, she went to the border and the mainstream media does not want to tell you what's actually happening at the border. She's going to tell you. And the other story, and this is the big groundbreaking one, is that she has dove into the origins of COVID-19. And guys, I'm just going to tell you, there's some really suspicious stuff there. So you're going to want to hear this, okay? You're going to hear this right after I tell you about our awesome sponsors, Louisville Cabinets Countertops. Listen, I don't talk about businesses I don't believe in. You will not hear me talk about businesses I don't believe in. Because that's not honest, it's not authentic, and it's not fair. Okay, when I'm telling you about a business, I'm telling you because I think you're going to get something out of it. I think you're going to get value out of it. Otherwise, I wouldn't tell you about it. I don't care. I mean, look, obviously, when companies come and sponsor our program, we obviously benefit because that's how you make money. Right. But I am not going to sacrifice the integrity of, you know, how this whole operation works simply to catch a check. It's about win, win, wins. Right. So the disruption zone wins. We get a sponsor. You win because there's something of value, and they win because they hopefully get customers. That's a win-win-win triangle, and it has to be that. And for it to be that, it means I have to believe in the business. It means I have to truly know how the business operates. And that is how I feel about Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. Um, we've worked with them twice. We actually had them do our master bathroom and our kitchen. We had a real weird problem with our kitchen island. So I called Tim Montgomery. I was like, dude. I need you to look at this thing. I cannot use it. I want to use it, but I cannot use it. So he comes in the house, looks at it, cocks his head sideways, scratches his head, and goes, I can fix that. And he did. And then he put beautiful uh, quartz countertops in, and they just did a fantastic and beautiful job. Now, this was several years before uh, we left Kentucky, but I can tell you that I'm pretty confident that the work they did in our kitchen helped our house sell in like less than a day. So, again, you're going to get great value from uh, updating your kitchen. And, of course, the master bath was also a great step. So they're fantastic. They've got three designers on staff. They're all super friendly, and they want to talk to you. It's George, Michelle, and Kelly. So give them a call, 
Louisvillecabinetsandcountertops.com or just stop by 6200 Hit Lane. If you're a do-it-yourselfer or a contractor, they have high-quality, super beautiful cabinets in stock that are affordable. If you go to their website, just click on cabinets and the drop-down says in stock. Go look. You're going to see amazing styles. You're going to be like, I can do that as a do-it-yourselfer? Totally. Uh, If you have the handiness to do it, they can help you with that as well. Or if you want a turnkey kitchen remodel, bam. Okay. We are also brought to you by Mark, uh, by uh, Mark Dara and Dara Cross Tactical. Um, Dara, Mark Dara has been a friend of mine for a long time, and this guy has a passion for firearms and a passion for training responsibly armed Americans. And so here's the deal. If you're going to get your concealed carry permit, and you should, and let me tell you why you should, because I know Kentucky's now constitutional carry, but it's a big deal to get your permit because you want to be able to carry in other states when you travel. And many other states accept Kentucky's concealed carry permit because of the intensity of the training that goes along with it. It's not like Kentucky's trying to restrict your access to your Second Amendment, but they take the responsibility of owning a firearm seriously. So the the, the, the class is a significant endeavor, right? So as a result of that, many, many other states recognize our concealed carry permit because they know that when a Kentuckian is carrying a gun, a Kentuckian knows how to use it and knows safely how to use it and safely how to take care of it any generally knows the law as well. So it's a very good idea to get it because you're going to get a lot of reciprocity when you travel. Now, Mark Dara holds his uh, his uh, training classes for concealed carry at Catfish Haven in Louisville, which is phenomenal because you can sit there and learn about firearms and eat catfish. I don't know a better way to enjoy it. I mean, a lot of people do the concealed carry class. You go sit in a boring classroom. I hope I can bring a donut. No, man, you can order catfish. While you're getting your concealed carry permit, it's ridiculous. So it's an eight-hour course, but it includes hands-on classroom training and range time. It is not boring. It is a great way to spend a, a day, um, and you're going to love it. And Dar- Mark, once you beca- once you take his class, he becomes your instructor for life. So you can always pester him with firearms questions and questions about all that stuff. He will be happy to help you with that. Now, they have classes coming up second Saturday in May. Good Lord, that's coming right up. You better get in for that one. Second Saturday in June and second Saturday in July. So you can go to Dara Cross Tactical on Facebook. It's D-A-R-R-A-G-H Cross Tactical. Two words, Dara Cross Tactical. It's actually three words, I know. I meant Dara Cross is two words. Or you can just give my buddy Mark a call directly and say, hey, I heard uh, through the Leland Conway Disruption Zone grapevine that you were doing some awesome concealed carry classes and I want in. His number is 502-724-5899, 502-724-5899. All right, you're going to want to hear this. You are going to want to hear this conversation with Cheryl Atkinson. You are going to want to hear about what happened with COVID-19 and what is going on with that suspicious situation. You're going to want to hear about journalism and you're going to want to hear about the border. So we're going to talk about all of that stuff. So right now. Let's get to it. My conversation with the great Cheryl Atkinson. All right. Welcome back, Cheryl Atkinson. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. I got to tell you, you're one of my heroes. And um, the reason is because I started out in journalism and I'm obviously a commentator now. It's a totally different thing. But it seems like in today's world of media, um, so-called journalists don't understand the difference. And you always have. And I've got an enormous amount of respect for that. Well, thank you so much. 
Um, before we get into what you've recently discovered, because there's, there's two quick stories I want to talk about. I want to talk about what you found at the border, because you've been to the border and taken a look there, and you are also um, revealing what you found out about the origins of COVID-19. And these are two, I think, very fascinating topics for our listeners. Um, but I'm actually excited because I've been invited to speak at a um, leadership conference uh, in Kentucky on the issue of um, basically cancel culture, um, the mainstream media, and bias, and big tech. And I just wondered what your thoughts were on what you've seen happen in the media over the last maybe decade in terms of the sort of what I see as a collusion between this weird cancel culture, this big tech censorship, and then the media sort of parroting a single-minded narrative. Well, I've written three books about this. So if I could summarize it, I might say the media, the news media and the media in general have been almost wholly co-opted by an industry of propagandists, corporate, political and special interests that have set out to do this. And as they were largely able to control the narrative on the news to to a very large degree in the past decade or so, they found in 2016, much to their surprise, that the public still elected Donald Trump, although they had universally tried to convince everybody he was uniquely dangerous. So they set about in late 2016, early 2017, trying to figure out how they could likewise control the Internet because they blamed the Internet for people continuing to get free and open information that was less controlled than it was on the news. And I think that's why the past four years, with the acceleration most recently, We've seen this incredible clampdown of information online. Used to be this wild west, free and open place where you could find anything um, except that which is illegal. Now it's quite a different animal. It's been transformed by the same industry of corporate and political interests. And what's ironic about that is that that used to be sort of the left's playground. It was the left sandbox. It was the part of the left wing sandbox that I played in with my left wing friends. I totally agreed. And, uh, wild open wide open internet free speech um that used to be sort of a core value of leftists or liberals and i think there's a difference between liberals and leftists by the way because i would consider myself to be a classical liberal socially conservative in my own personal life but socially liberal in terms of how everyone else lives theirs but physically conservative that seems to be no longer anything that that the left in america can even entertain um because of that, I don't know, it's just that that agenda. I mean, I've thought, I, I've always considered Trump to be sort of a weird by, byproduct of um, the media itself. Because if you remember in the primary leading up to that, the media loved Trump because he was the guy they thought Hillary would have the easiest time with. I mean, he was on Morning Joe every freaking day and they were yucking it up um, with him. And then suddenly they're like, oh, my God, he's the worst thing ever. You know what I mean? It was like we never heard much of the destructive politics that was brought about as soon as he became the the um, you know the nominee. But prior to that, man, the media was loving having him on. Every morning it was a circus. Well, and remember, this was driven, in my view, by special interests who are creating these narratives that the media is dutifully picking up in part because the media has – been infiltrated by these interests. We've invited them aboard. They work in our newsrooms now. Yeah. So when they decide a narrative that they want to be promulgated, we comply. And there was a decision um, when Donald Trump became a serious candidate by 
Democrats and some Republicans, some very powerful interests, as well as corporate interests, because all of this ties together with corporations that do not want to be regulated a certain way, that don't want certain laws passed in Congress, that want certain access to the president of the United States through these money players in both parties. They didn't want a Donald Trump in there because he was throwing out all these formulas. So the narrative went from, if you remember, Donald Trump is a clown to Donald Trump as a dangerous racist and so on. They, the clown right. didn't work, so they changed that quite dramatically after a few months of trying that, and it became this dangerous dark thing. Now, before, you said that the media was yucking it up with him initially, but prior to him running for president, none yeah. of these themes were ever prevalent on the news. Nobody was yeah. widely calling him any kind of racist, quite the opposite. He was known from his TV program by people of all stripes, races, colors, genders, as being a guy that didn't see that. Yeah. And then they transformed him around September of 2016 through a propaganda campaign largely led by Media Matters and its affiliates, the left-wing propaganda group, transformed him into a supposed racist and white supremacist. Now, he didn't do a lot to help himself with his rhetoric throughout the course of his presidency, but you're absolutely right. Um, it, it, it was, I, I mean, he, he was buddy-buddy with, rap stars and pop stars and um you know he was he was a celebrity he was a celebrity's celebrity and everybody loved him everybody wanted to get that soundbite everybody wanted to have that that cameo appearance i mean my wife and i were laughing this last christmas when we watched home alone for like the five thousandth time and you see the trump cameo in there you know it's like everybody yeah. wanted that two seconds of of, of trump you know prior to all this that's a really great point well and when you say his rhetoric i have a theory about that um, I have a feeling that if he had not fought back the way he did, and I couldn't find any instances where he was offensively offensive. In other words, right. as people said, he punched back. If he had not, I'm not sure he would have survived. Yeah. And I'm not sure he would have ended up, although he's not president today, but with millions more votes, he left more popular among his followers than when he entered office. I'm not sure that's ever happened with a president who lost a second term. Yeah. But he he grew in his popularity over that time. And I think not everybody could get away with the Trump tactics that he used, the PR campaigns and how he marketed himself and the things that he said with his rhetoric. But I think for him, that was just right. And I'm not sure he would have survived if he had taken what people would consider the high road and not fought the way he did and not use the language he did. You, you make an interesting point because I think probably the biggest example of where they were able to create something that didn't exist was the uh, post-Charlottesville uh, situation where there became literally, literally a constructed false narrative around words he didn't say. Um, where it became this whole false narrative of there's fine people on both sides. Which, right. if he had actually said that, would have been an egregious thing to say. There are no fine white supremacists. None. Right. right? right. But that's not what he said. He was talking very clearly, uh, and I don't remember word for word exactly what he said, but he was talking about how there were people there who were supportive of the historical values. I used to live in Virginia. I know how they feel about those statues. Um, they weren't necessarily supportive of of all those other things, but they were supportive of the historical value of the statue. And he was saying that some of those people who originally came were good people who were just standing up for history and they got mixed up with the weirdos that showed up afterwards. But the, they literally constructed something that he did not say out of that statement. And well, to this day, many people believe that he said that and he didn't. 
there's so many examples like that. But not only did he not call white supremacists fine people, he said the opposite explicitly yes. over and over again that day. And when asked thereafter by reporters about it, he explicitly said that that they were to be condemned and that they were that white supremacists and so on were, um, you know, awful. And he just used every kind of bit of language. But then they would lift that one phrase, yeah. much as they did with the Capitol riots at his uh, peaceful demonstration. He talked about them marching to the Capitol peacefully and patriotically, but the press largely cut out that phrase mm -hmm. as if to actually they didn't just imply. They stated that he had uh, urged the crowd to go conduct some sort of violent insurgency when he had specifically used words that were the opposite of that. So that's just kind of part and parcel of how uh, some in the media treated the president pretty much the whole time he was in office to accomplish a particular narrative. You have always askewed sort of specific narratives for trying to find the truth. And um, we're talking with uh, journalist Cheryl Ackeson, investigative journalist Cheryl Ackeson. What what inspired you to become a journalist and, and what gives you the strength to stay a journalist when everyone else who calls them a journalist is not and is destroying the profession in a lot of ways? Well, I guess I'm sort of a fact seeker, a logician. I like to compare treatment of different issues. And in this case, it just really fell into my lap, this notion of seeing the media treat Donald Trump differently than they treat other figures. So you see, say, well, what's behind the disparate treatment? I think that's interesting and it can be so easily proven and called out. That's it's interesting to me to do so. And with news stories, I enjoy the puzzle of figuring something out if you're talking about sort of an investigation or getting what's behind some some act or some news event. Um, and I find meaning in taking an event that is not being well explained or taking an underreported viewpoint and bringing that to the public, because I think the best thing we can do, particularly in today's environment, is to get beyond those narratives, which will usually point you to a real story. When you hear a prevailing narrative, someone doesn't want you to think something or know something or read something. That tells me I need to go find out about that because there may be a truth there that's that powerful interests don't want us to see. And more often than not, there is. And it's very rewarding to bring that forth to the public rather than just reporting what everybody else is saying, which I don't find a whole lot of value in because the information's already out there. Um, do you still I mean, people can go back and listen to our last conversation about what happened to you in terms of being. Uh, smeared and being attacked and being spied upon by the government and others who just didn't like your truth that you brought to these things. Um, but do you still face persecution for being sort of the opposite of what mainstream journalism is today? Well, I don't notice it. I'm sure I'm criticized by the propagandists such as Media Matters because that's what they do. They certainly don't want people reporting things their corporate and political interests don't want them to see. But I sort of take that as a badge of honor when you're right. being targeted for something like that, when you're simply reporting facts and information and somebody is telling you the public doesn't have a right to make up their own mind. I feel like I'm onto something. And whenever that's happened, I've usually been able to uncover what I think is a pretty important story. So you know, I, I look at it a little differently when I face attacks like that instead of rolling up in a ball and worrying about it. I think hmm, I must be onto something. And somehow I've managed to survive. You know, I haven't haven't been um, snuffed out of public view. So 
I, I guess something's going right. I, I do know people want this information by nature. Right. Most people, not everybody's feeling this way, but most people don't want to be told what to think and what they can't see and what they have to conclude. They want to be able to have more information and make up their own minds. Well, and I think it's fascinating, like in today's world, you talk about people wanting information. The virus, the COVID is a, is a perfect example of this, right? Because we've got the government giving us conflicting information. I, I posted on social media yesterday, uh, there was a Babylon Bee headline, which thank God for the Babylon Bee there. So freaking hilarious. <laughs> Satire site. They had a guy with a seatbelt on standing in a city park. And it was like, CDC says we should now wear seatbelts even when outside the car. <laughs> and that that got a huge response on Facebook, but Facebook put the little COVID warning up on there, you know, and it's like people are <laughs> people are sick of this kind of um, overlordish, you know, you're stupid. We're here to tell you how to live your life. Guys like right. Fauci that are double speaking and they're seeking. It's not that we're seeking being told what we want to hear, although I think there's some people that do that, but we're seeking truth and the places where we can find it are becoming, you know, fewer and fewer and farther between. Um, and, and I think that's why the service that you're providing as an actual journalist who doesn't really have a political agenda um, certainly doesn't, you know, show any bias to one side or the other. Um, it, it's a good thing that we have that out there. Well, I'm looking up, you know, I, I call this tyranny by the minority of people. What you're seeing prevailing on the news is often, and on the media, is often not a reflection of what's going on in the country, but these interests want to control the vision to make it seem like that's what's going on. And there's just so many examples of this. But when CDC came out and said the other day, like you mentioned, you don't have to wear a mask necessarily outdoors anymore. I tweeted something like, hey, psst, CDC, most Americans weren't wearing a mask <laughs> right. outside anyway. Right. And even though my Twitter account is very down throttled, it's manipulated to have a very limited view compared to what it used to. I think it got 20,000 likes right away because, <laughs> you know, people don't people know that what they're seeing isn't a reflection of what's really out there. And right. that's what I think that's what scares all of us. It's almost like watching what watching the news. If there is news in North Korea must be like. Right. It's a picture of something they want you to think and believe, but it's not a real representation of what's going on. And I'll, I'll go off on a bit of a tangent and say. Of course, there's racism in this country among all races and pockets of problems. But in most of America, there aren't these battles every day that you would think there are if you just watch the news. Yeah. Of course, there are all kinds of um, their coronavirus has been devastating and deadly to so many people. But the, in most of America, geographically, they didn't do these lockdowns after March and April. A lot of places went back to school, had no problems, played fall sports. This stuff isn't being represented on the news. And on the media because they, these interests that want to control the viewpoints want a certain image out there and they don't want the alternative or even reality at times to be represented. That's a really good point. We're talking with Cheryl Atkinson, investigative journalist, author of the book slanted. She also uh, has full measure news, which you can see on many stations across this country. Um, I want to talk about the COVID thing because you've made some discoveries about its origin here in just a minute, but uh, before I do, you also, last we talked, you were getting ready to go to the border. You've been to the border. You did uh, some reporting on what happened there. By the way, ironically, reporting around what was going on on the border is, is what got you targeted by the government last time. You got a little too close to what was going on with Fast and Furious. But what did you find at America's border when you went down there? 
Well, my last visit, and I've been there maybe six times since I've been working with my show Full Measure, um, was right ahead of all the media coverage that finally decided there was a crisis there. And what I saw was a crisis, and that was the conclusion of law enforcement bodies, residents, Border Patrol agents, everybody. That The numbers they were seeing, the reasons they were seeing people coming um, – you know, they, they knew it was bad. So it's it's still like that. It hasn't been resolved. Um, I think most Americans, my goal in going to the border is most will never make it to the border and not understand what it's like, especially the news has actually covered some of this since then pretty well, particularly when it comes to children, but maybe not the bigger picture, the drugs coming across, the fact that the cartels send across these children and families in one part of the border as a distraction to take up all the border patrol agents while they move drugs in another part of the border that therefore has to be unguarded. I mean, there are all kinds of problems. We are patronizing the drug cartels because every person who crosses the Mexican border has had to pay a fee or a bounty of some kind to the cartels to be allowed to cross. They control the entire southern border. They're making money hand over fist, trafficking children and families. In, in other words, by us not being tougher on the border, we're making the cartel stronger and richer. And there's just all kinds of side effects and after effects of, of this policy that are not really being well discussed. I, I grew up 20 miles from the border um, and I grew up right on I, I grew up on the Donald Altham Nation, which I'm sure you're familiar with if you've studied what's happened on the border, because that is yeah. probably next to Tijuana and maybe Brownsville. I don't know. Those three are always battling for the highest trafficked area where people come through. When I was a kid, I used to sit on my roof with my friend and we would watch people come up the dry wash behind our house because at that time it was just people coming looking for work. You know, it was not it was not anything like what it is now. My dad still lives there and he's had all kinds of issues with break ins and various different crimes that have happened around um, where he lives because of the drug trafficking, the human trafficking, and the issues that have arisen out of that. And I can tell you it's become lawless. Um, I talk to him almost every day, and it's become lawless, and it's become terrifying. And I grew up in that community, and when I was a kid, I never really felt unsafe. I mean, it was not exactly the safest part of America, but I never really felt unsafe. Uh, when I go home now, uh, it's a whole different world. That community is ravaged by that. And I don't think people quite understand just how serious it is when the cartels can do whatever the heck they want. And it's not about being against people coming here from other countries. I'm as pro-immigration as it, as it goes. Um, immigration has made America awesome. I have immigrants in my family, I'm sure, somewhere. But it's about law and order, and you can't have this dream that people can come to and make a better life if you don't have law and order, and it's it's serious. Well, one thing I learned, you know, talking about the impact on the border, people say, I get that. I get that um, crime can be bad and these communities are suffering. But one thing, again, that's not well reported, but we did cover on full measure, the this crime does not stay on the border. These people want to move the drugs. There are pipelines that go, for example, from Arizona to Chicago and from Texas to L.A. There are pipelines where the drugs that are destroying parts of America move. And this is behind, as we reported on Full Measure, a lot of the violence that we see in Chicago. People are like, why is there so much violence in Chicago and gun violence in Chicago? 
that is drug and gang related. Mm. And it has much to do with that being the end of the pipeline of some of these drugs that come in from Mexico. This is a distribution point. So this stuff doesn't just stay. The problems don't just stay on the border. It would be bad even if it did. But this crime moves all across America to our interior, to our cities and um, towns, you know, all across the country. For sure. We're talking with um, Cheryl Atkinson, investigative journalist, award winning investigative journalist, by the way, author of Slanted, New York Times bestseller. Um, and also uh, Cheryl uh, Atkins, it's The Smear. So there's a ton of great books that you have actually. Stonewalled is another one of your books. Um, let me dive into like the real reason I wanted to chat with you today. And it was, you have you tweeted the other day that you were going to report on what you found when you looked into the origins of COVID. And you also had a little hint that you were working on this story last time we talked as well. So I'm excited to find out what you found out. Uh, about this very strange emergence of this very strange virus. So what have you found out? There's quite a bit. So go to CherylAckison.com, read the transcript, the extra information I've posted, watch the video. But long story short, um, a lot of the rumors and conspiracy theories that I certainly didn't get behind, not knowing more, turned out to either be true or have rings of truth in them. For example, I learned that I think a huge chunk of the scientific community concluded long ago, despite what you've heard in the press, that COVID-19 originated at the Wuhan lab in China. I um, learned that from insiders who have knowledge of this, that the United States did the genetic analysis of COVID-19 very early on and saw hallmarks of genetic manipulation. So they've known that, although that hasn't been publicly announced. And it turns out that taxpayer money through the National Institutes of Health and Dr. Fauci's sub-institute under NIH and through USAID have gone to fund very controversial research that may genetically altered coronavirus infectious in people with in conjunction and partnership with the communist Chinese, which is was highly criticized by scientists I spoke to that don't think the U.S. and our scientists should be allowed to partner with the communist Chinese on this, this very potentially risky research called gain of function, where you're taking a harmless virus to people, harmless, and you're making it infectious in people for the purpose of creating a vaccine. And if it escapes... By accident, as they say, it can cause a pandemic. So it's controversial that the research was being done. It's controversial that an exception was granted to this research funded with our taxpayer money with China to continue it even when it was banned in the United States temporarily in 2014. Um, it's controversial that China has a bioweapons program that is quite successful and well-known, and yet we're you know, experimenting with them or conducting these experiments on this dangerous stuff with them. There are all kinds of issues. But one of the things also I, I think was not well reported, several public health fig figures whom we've heard controversializing the mere asking of the question, the most rational, logical question, did this come from the Wuhan lab, are themselves tied to the controversial research that took place there, either through funding or through the actual published studies that they were conducting there, but they don't disclose that. So when you hear Dr. Fauci say that the lab theory is probably not true, I haven't heard him add, but by the way, 
I was committing my my institution tax dollars to that controversial research with the Wuhan lab. Right. When you when you hear the head of this nonprofit called EcoHealth Alliance that was funneling taxpayer money and co-researching with China on these uh, potentially risky projects, when you hear him lead this campaign to say that's all conspiracy theories to ask questions about the lab, he doesn't say, by the way, I've partnered on research with the scientists at the lab. And incredibly, the same guy has been named as part of the World Health Organization team to investigate whether it came from the lab. So there's a conflict of interest with the people they're letting make these decisions who are in fact connected to the lab themselves, but not disclosing that, at least in in common public discussions about it. So I guess like from the outside looking in as a citizen, if if everything you're saying is true, I look at that and I say that originally there was this suspicion that maybe China was trying to weaponize it, which clearly that's probably not the case because they were working with us. But that begs the question, because I've heard that. What did you call it? Um, what was the term when you're trying to um, give it gain function, of function? Gain of function. I've heard that term with with regards to researching what could potentially be countermeasures to a bio uh, to a bioweapon or something like that or to you know weaponized stuff but this i guess what i'm getting at is what do you think the motive was in taking a, a virus that was not harmful to humans were there were there good motives in that we were concerned that this particular virus might make the leap although my understanding is it wasn't anywhere close to making the leap so i would question that but what was the purpose of doing this or was well, it me, simply to create a vaccine that simply profited an enormous amount of uh, pharmaceutical companies' coffers? Let me um, take one thing you said first. I'm not, I'm not making an accusation and have no information on China's bio program, but the assumption, the reason many scientists in the U.S. don't think we should be partnering in research with them is because for everything they do, they have a civil application and a military application, it right. is said. So while they're on one track working with us on a civilian application, why would we not think that they are also working with the communist Chinese government on a military application? I don't have any information on that, but I certainly wouldn't exclude that. On To the, to the point of what they were trying to do, well, scientists around the globe have been using cor- bat coronavirus or coronavirus to try to make vaccines. It's called a vaccine vector, a delivery system for different kinds of vaccines, including for coronavirus that could come from bats. And the altruistic motive is, yes, they were trying to get ahead of something that could happen. They were trying to predict, well, what strain is likely to cross into people? What what strain can we make cross into people so that we can see, would this do it? And they successfully did that in 2015. They took uh, bat coronavirus, they genetically manipulated it in a lab. This is all in published studies and all the evidence is at CherylAxon.com. And they made it infectious in human airway cells grafted in mice. So they knew that it had worked, that they had successfully made it gain this function. Again, controversial, considered quite dangerous. But to make a vaccine, to have a vaccine ready so that if that happens naturally, here we are. We already have the solution. Well, obviously, it didn't work out because we didn't have a solution when whatever happened, happened. And then there is the question of, is this profit-motivated research? Is it ill-advised but conducted anyway because, obviously, the pharmaceutical industry really wants to come up with the next blockbuster vaccine? So they will tell you that there's a lot of legitimate research being done to try to get ahead of the next pandemic, and I'm sure that's true. But there is also 
potential money to be made, of course, when they come up with a vaccine that they think could handle the next pandemic. It just seems awfully convenient for pharmaceutical companies that they are legally completely immune to any lawsuits that could arise out of any problems with this virus by legislation, my understanding is. Am I right on that? Um, they're they're immune from um, from vaccine injuries, at least in large part. There's a complicated exception if you go through this special vaccine court that's been created where they, they're granted indemnity, they don't have to pay damages. I think at some point you can file a case outside of vaccine court. It's, it's rarely done, but In general, right. They have immunity from damages for their vaccines. We, the public, pays any damages for vaccine injuries if a case is won in court. The government defends the vaccine companies. They don't even have to put up their their own lawyers for it through this special system that's been been in place for several decades that Congress started on behalf of the companies. And now we're hearing that we might have to take a booster shot every year. So that that's also very convenient. I reported that in January that particularly these RNA vaccines, according to the lead virologist at Fort Detrick, who's very pro-vaccine, but as he said to me on camera, we've never had an RNA vaccine before, partly because they don't work very well, they don't last very long. And Mm. he suspected maybe these last six months or so. Um, And so, yes, the government has officially announced, or the drug companies, I guess, that the people who got those first two shots, the double dose, will need a third shot before the end of the year. And and they don't last very long, so... Before, yeah, that's before I let you go. What do you make of the societal buy-in? Because like one of the things that's irked me from the very beginning of this is Dr. Fauci and others, so-called experts, double speak, and I think it's part of what is hurt buy-in. I mean, when he's out there telling people to wear two masks outside after they've been fully vaccinated and keep distance, it's just people are like, "Come on, man, I'm not that stupid." So what is what's the root cause of that? Because it's led to this sort of Karen's versus everybody else, you know, this sort of social weirdness where you're either you're pro mask or anti mask and, you know, hell to pay for the other side. If you you know what I mean, it's 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 a weird lack of common sense in, in, in society with how to deal with this. What do you make of that? Well, I have two things to say about that. Um, scientists I spoke to who work at important levels inside our government, many of them have pointed to me and said, Fauci's been wrong about virtually everything he said. And they don't well respect him in terms of being someone, they say he's not treated patients, he's not that kind of, you know, doctor, and they they think he's just been off the mark on so many things, but they have not stepped forward for fear of appearing to contradict him. And because of this propaganda campaign that's out there for fear of being called coronavirus doubters or something like yeah. that now how scary is that, that follow the science <laughs> you know that scientists can't come forward in this environment because it's been so politicized and managed that they can't tell what they think is the truth right for fear of being controversialized and losing their jobs as far as this you know i think there's an interesting phenomenon as far as people who want to comply with whatever the government says regardless of if, if it changes you know 180 degrees from one moment to the next and people who don't. And I think that has something to do with personality type. And I wrote about this at the very beginning. If you are a compliance person, if you think the government, you trust your government, you think that whatever they say is true and you want to be compliant, that's a personality type. Yeah. Those who are more skeptical maybe want to make up their own mind, do additional reading, 
run against the grain. That's a personality type. And I think we're seeing, you know, a bit of that. And maybe that divides along political lines because of personality, too. Whereas this is not purely Democrat and Republican, because I have friends on both sides that have taken various views on the vaccines and masking and so on. But in general, I would say Republicans seem a bit more skeptical of this stuff and Democrats less. And again, I think that may just be how people's particular personality types shake down, you know, what they're willing to do. For sure. All right. I know you got to run full measure news. You can catch it on stations across the country. You can also go to fullmeasure.news, your website, CherylAtkison.com. And uh, Cheryl is spelled S-H-A-R-Y-L-A-T-T-K-I-S-S-O-N. Also, your books are available on Amazon.com. Your latest book, Slanted, is awesome. Um, and then you also wrote in 2018, The Smear. What's your next big project? Well, usually after I've written a book, I take a year saying that was my last book, and then I start <laughs> thinking about the next one. So I'm in the I'm in the phase right now of taking a taking a breather, and I'm I'll be starting season seven of Full Measure in the fall, our new season of hopefully underreported original stories that aren't being told elsewhere. There's a lot of those that need to be told, and there's a lot of demand for it, as you said earlier. Um, Listen, Cheryl, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to uh, chat with us and update us on this latest very important work that you're doing. We appreciate you very much. Thanks a lot. All right. Have a great day. Um, She is awesome and honestly one of my heroes, and I, I mean that because she has the courage to keep going when everything in the mainstream is pushing against her and cannot stand the fact that she tells the truth and it's it's crazy um so and and that, that i'm just my mind is kind of blown by what she discovered about covid not that i didn't think that that was possible possible but when you start connecting the dots and if you go to her website exclusive investigation uh, that she puts up uh separating rumor from fact on covid-19's origin she's got a whole she she lays it all out and it's pretty powerful stuff so you can see that at com. All right, uh, big thanks to our sponsors today, uh, Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. They are so great. I, you know, I told you many times before, I do not talk about businesses that I do not actually believe in. And I, when I say I believe in a business, it means that I have either worked with them, that I've been a customer meaning, or uh, I have researched them so thoroughly that I fully trust them or that I know the people involved in the company and I know their character. So that's what I mean when I say that I, I've, you know, when I talk about businesses that I know. And with Louisville Cabinets and Countertops, we were actually a customer of theirs more than once. We actually had them do our kitchen and then we had them do our master bathroom. And both times we were extraordinarily happy with the work. Otherwise, I wouldn't recommend it. I, if I hadn't been happy with the work, I wouldn't tell you how awesome they are. And that's the bottom line. So if you are looking to, let, let, let me just examine the situation right now. If you're in a situation where you're thinking, hey, I got my dream house, but my kitchen is not what I want it to be. Man, interest rates are like a historic low right now. Go ahead and get a home equity loan if you want to do that. Uh, if you don't have the cash on hand and, and, and make this change because it'll add value to your home and it'll add enjoyment to your home. Um, we recently did a project on our house. This one wasn't the kitchen. But, you know, it, it costs a few thousand dollars, but it's it, we talked to our realtor beforehand. We were like, if we do this, we're going to get a ton of enjoyment out of it. But what about the investment? She's like, oh, yeah, do it. Certain projects in your home um, will do wonders for your enjoyment of the home and uh, can in sometimes they can actually bring about a good return. 
And I feel like that a kitchen is one of those things. And so why don't you just jump into it, man? Uh, if you've been thinking about upgrading to your dream kitchen, just do it and call Louisville Cabinets and Countertops at 502-930-3304, 502-930-3304. And talk to uh, Michelle, George, or Kelly. They're awesome, friendly uh, designers who uh, can help you set up everything that you want to do. They are available for you there, and you can also go to LouisvilleCabinetsAndCountertops.com or just stop by the showroom at 6200 Hit Lane. They've got cabinets in stock. If you're a do-it-yourself or a contractor that are high quality and affordable, you can even do laminate cut same day in certain cases. And then, of course, any type of solid surface countertop that you're looking for, they got that as well. So it's Louisville Cab Cabinets and Countertops. Tim Montgomery and the boys over there have a terrific work ethic and a high uh, level of pride in their craftsmanship. We're also brought to you by Dara Cross Tactical. And Dara, Mark Dara, is a good friend of mine. I have seen parts of his classes. I know that he is a fantastic firearms training instructor. He's a, uh, a combat veteran, so you're going to be in the hands of an individual who knows how guns work, knows how they can be used defensively. So if you're thinking about getting your concealed carry permit in Kentucky, Go to Dara Cross Tactical. Now, you might be saying, but Kentucky's constitutional carry, Leland. I don't have to worry about it. Dude, you're going to want your concealed carry permit for two reasons. Number one, if you go outside of Kentucky for any reason, you're going to want to hopefully, hopefully you're going to a state that has reciprocity. You're going to need that permit in order to carry in that state. Tennessee, uh, Georgia, Alabama, Texas, uh, Florida. You're going to want those states that have that reciprocity. And you, you can constitutional carry in Kentucky, but if you leave... Plus, the other thing is that carrying a firearm also comes with a responsibility. And you have a responsibility to learn everything you can about the law and everything you can about safety and everything you can about actually defensively using your firearm. These classes are taught at Catfish Haven in Louisville, which is awesome because I can't think of a better thing than hanging out, eating catfish, learning about guns all day long in an awesome eight-hour course that includes hands-on and range training. And it meets the requirements for Kentucky's CCDW permit. He is your instructor for life, Mark Darrow. Once you take his class, you can always pester him with questions about your firearm and about uh, defensive shooting and all of that stuff. So classes are second Saturday of May, June, and July. Second Saturday of May, June, and July. Go to Dara Cross Tactical's Facebook page. Dara is spelled D-A-R-R. Um, uh, I, I'm sitting here trying to trying to remember how to spell it. D a r r a g h, Dara Cross Tactical. And when you go there, um, that Facebook page will have all the schedule on the classes and all of that. But you can also just call Mark directly at 502-724-5899. 502-724-5899. Big thanks to JP Web Design Dynamics Productions. Follow us on Twitter. It's at Leland Show at Great Lilando on Instagram. Uh, it's at Zone Disruption on Twitter for the Disruption Zone and at the Disruption Zone on Instagram. Download us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, wherever podcasts are found. Give us a five-star review. That pushes us out to more people, and it helps a ton as we continue to try to spread the message. Spread the gospel. I'm Leland Conway on the Disruption Zone. <laughs>